You know, I'll just, we'll, we'll use Jesus' own words here shortly. Who needs to go to the doctor? The healthy people? The sick. These are the ones he came for. You know, I, I, I love going to the gym and, you know, there's, there's this guy, you know. See that guy with all the muscles? That's not going to be me. Um, it's like, okay, you can stop now. You're good. You're healthy. Next, the gym is for people who aren't healthy. But who's the church for? The sick. The sick. And think about, we've always talked in our past studies, we all interact with certain circles. We have a circle in, you know, in Greek we say parea, our, our group, our friends, our, you know, um, I don't know the Arabic, the kumbari, you know, our, our best man, our kids, bad godparents, we all have that. What's the Arabic? But you have a relationship like that too. What's the, kum, is it, is it something? Kum is Russian. Yeah, okay, kum is Russian too, thank you. So, you know, we have our circle, and it's people I work with who tend to think, this poor lady, God love her and her, her kindness, Let's face it, most of my friends are nonprofit people because I've been a nonprofit guy my whole life. So I tend to hang out with people who run nonprofit charities. And, you know, we, most of our events tend to be nonprofit galas. I mean, she one time, you know, through, we had one, we had five events in one weekend. And on, on the fifth event, Yvette leaned over and said, Could we have dinner just once this week where we don't have to clap? Yeah. Um, right. But that's my circle. And if you wanted to attract that circle, you need a gatekeeper. You need me. Because I'm going to bring all my friends with me. Who, does Jesus, who has Jesus come for? Don't miss that. In this, and the contemporary church has got to grasp this. Who has Jesus come for? The sinners. So if you want to get the sinners, who do you need? A sinner. You need a gatekeeper. But what I love about this passage is the reaction of the religious people. Keep going, Judy. Verse 16. 15 or 16? 16. Okay. Actually, I'm sorry, uh, verse 15, you're right. Now it happened as he was standing in Levi's house that many tax collectors, collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What do you think would happen in almost all of our mainline parishes if a prostitute walked in on Sunday morning and sat down? Right. We'd probably show him or her the door. Who are we trying to bring to Christ? And I think we have to ask an even more basic question. Are we, as a church, trying to bring anyone to Christ? Is that our mission, to bring the gospel to people who are hurting and lonely? And sadly, very often it's not. Our mission is just to kind of exist. Let's pay our bills, keep the doors of the church open, you know, pay our priest's salary, and have our festival and move on to next year. I mean, where's the mission statement that we want to convert this neighborhood? St. Mary's, think about the neighborhood you live in. I want you to compare the church to the modern-day supermarket. Walmart, Target, Costco. You can go to Costco and get tires on your car. Get your prescriptions filled. Go to any of the superstores, Target, Walmart, Publix. 
They have a whole section of Spanish foods. Why? We're in South Florida. But I live in Boynton Beach now. For 17 years, I lived in Boca. The Winn-Dixie across the street from me had, an, forget an aisle, they had an entire section of kosher. My neighborhood was extremely Jewish. There were three synagogues within walking distance of my condo. There was an entire kosher section in the Winn-Dixie I lived in. Why? To meet the needs of the people that so is it possible that the modern-day supermarket is more interested in getting new customers than the church is converting people to Christ? Very possible. These are painful questions that Bible study makes us ask. These are painful questions that Bible study makes us ask. As far as America has come in our race relations, Sunday morning between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock is the most segregated hour in our communities. Why are there black churches in America? Because in the 19th century, we wouldn't let them in ours. There's an answer to your question. Why? Very simple. The people who invest in publics and the other places, they get profit. They get something out of it. That would imply, if you apply that reason and logic, that we would get profit by bringing the people who need salvation. We do. But what is our profit? But that's dollars. the question. Yeah. Is, that, is, is that what we expect? Is that our motivation? I'm asking, I want to rethink. I like what you're saying. What is our, our profit is seeing souls one for Christ. Seeing the lost come to salvation. Seeing people who are hurting, beat up and lonely, find meaning in their life. Coming to church and finding a community that loves them. These passages are, you know, and Mark gives us so quick. You almost have to, you know, do this and take a step back and go, what, what just happened here? He, he specifically, we saw this last week, unlike most rabbis, Jesus didn't sit in his little rabbi house waiting for people to come to him. He goes out and finds Andrew. He goes out and finds Peter. He goes out and finds James and John. Now he goes, he specifically went and looked for Levi, or let's just call him Matthew, because that's who he is. He goes and finds St. Matthew. He says, follow me. Knowing Matthew is going to bring what with him? That whole circle of friends. Can you imagine this party? Now, our Pharisee friends, we're going to see them again in this, this next moment. I, 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 this scene just fascinates me. Jesus is having dinner in a house full of tax collectors, probably a few harlots, prostitutes, you know, what we would call today drunkards. I mean, this is a weird group, and yet he's there preaching and loving them. And who's at the door peeking in? The Pharisees. All right? Go back to... Verse 16, right? I don't make these things up. What does the text say? And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, how do they know? How do they see it? Well, because they were looking for it. This is going to be a recurring theme tonight, by the way, and I love it. I'm going to jump ahead of myself. I was going to use this later, but I'll use it now. In the Gospel of John, the woman caught in the act of adultery, stoned her, and all the Pharisees said, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. How did they catch her? Watching. They were peeking through the window. <laughs> they were peeking through the window. What does that say about their faith? What does that say about their hypocrisy? Yeah, you know, if, if I look deeply into your life, I'm going to find some sin. <laughs> oh, that's not necessary. <laughs> so, I, I mean, these Pharisees just absolutely fascinate me. They're looking. They're looking to, to beat him up. They're looking for yeah. things to criticize him. 
Why does your master eat with sinners and tax? Because that's who he came for. If you don't get this passage, you don't get Jesus. You don't understand why he's here. And we, of, of the apostolic Christian faith, of the, of the Anglicans, the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, we've got to remember every now and then this is, this is what our mission is. I'm not going to go back and tell you the lighthouse story again, but again, you know, the community that's there to rescue people who are shipwrecked, I, I just don't see that in the contemporary church, that driving urgency to go out and, and give the message to people who need it. I mean, being blunt, if you really want to convert this neighborhood, first you better ramp up the, the amount of Spanish you use in your church. Why do you think, and I said this to Yvette, who's Cuban, when I was at St. Mark, I learned how to do weddings and baptisms in Spanish. Why? Because half the weddings I did, one of the partners was Hispanic. Don't we want them to feel at home too? The first time I did a wedding in Spanish, oh my God, the Spanish grandmother, the abuela, threw herself into my arms during the... The Greeks were ready to have me, you know, tarred and feathered and run out of town and sent back to San Diego. But, but I mean, are we serious about bringing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's what this passage sets up. Any questions? Um, I just, I think verse 17 says it all. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, next controversy. Somebody on my left, that would be Nadine. Take us from 18 to 22. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Stop right there. Uh, orth uh, Christians, and especially the Orthodox or Roman Catholics, we did not invent fasting. <laughs> Jews, been, you know, let's, let's get that over with right now. I, we just finished the Day of Atonement, uh, right? The Jewish yeah, people have been fasting for a long, 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 it's the one time in Boca Raton you can go out and get a restaurant. It's great. <laughs> Until sundown, then everything falls apart. Um, no, but I mean, the Jews have been fasting for 3,000 years. So fasting is not uh, something we created. So. And then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. We're going to stop there for a minute. We need to, we need to take a minute and look at this, this unbelievably powerful image, especially for those of us in the Orthodox world of the bridegroom. To the Jewish people, there was nothing as celebratory as a wedding. Um, if a rabbi was doing a biblical teaching and he heard a wedding celebration in the next street over, he was compelled by their, their traditional law to set aside his teaching and go join the wedding feast. If a funeral was being celebrated and a wedding came by, stop grieving and go celebrate. That there was such a celebration of, of, of the bridegroom. Um, I, I don't want to go too off into this because I'm going to stay on topic tonight, but this image of the bridegroom really grows out of the Old Testament imagery of the people of Israel as the bride of God. And when they go follow false gods, they're committing adultery. That's a constant refrain in the Old Testament prophets. You have committed, and they, sorry young people, they said you have committed adultery with these other gods. And so God, the bridegroom, rather than divorcing his unfaithful wife, he just keeps coming back, keeps forgiving, keeps showing mercy. And so for us in the Orthodox Church, this image of Christ the Bridegroom really comes home during Holy Week. The services of Holy Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday night are called the Bridegroom services. That icon of Christ with his hands tied and the rod in his hand and the crown of thorns, that's the, the Bridegroom. Behold, the Bridegroom comes in the middle of the night. 
one of the parables we read later on in the Gospels, that when the, we're, we're supposed to be waiting for the bridegroom. The, you know, the brides were in the church, and the bridegroom showed up, and they were sleeping. They weren't ready. Are you going to be ready when the bridegroom shows up? All of this gets connected to Christ. He is the ultimate bridegroom. He is our bridegroom. And I'm his bride. I, I, again, I don't mean to be flipped, but I, I've shared this with a couple of you in the past. I was on a panel at Harvard Divinity many, many, many years ago, and it was on why the church is patriarchal. I was like, oh, God, here we go. I'm going to listen to this for two hours at Harvard Divinity, and it was the, the, the bastion of liberalism in America. And I'm like, okay, let me just get through this. And, and you know, every, oh, the church is patriarchal, and we've already addressed that here. The church really isn't. But I just, I listened for an hour and 47 minutes, and finally the, the, the Jesuit, who was like mod, moderating this thing, said, well, you know, Reverend Gorillas, you know, what is, what is your orthodox position on this? And I said, well... I'm going to tell you the other exposition is we call Christ the bridegroom. And it went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that would make me the bride of Christ. And it went, yeah. And I said, well, if I can be the bride of Christ, why can't we call God Father and just call it even? Dead silence at Harvard Divinity. I don't have a problem being called the bride of Christ. If he's my bridegroom, awesome. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who is coming back for his unfaithful bride, who is me. I'm the one who has committed adultery by, by not loving him as deeply as I should. So that, that image now of not just the wedding and the celebration, but it's identifying Christ as the bridegroom. So back to the celebration. Keep going. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new pieces will pull away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And I think the important part here is now Jesus is identifying himself with the bridegroom. They don't get it yet because they don't get his kind of oblique reference. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's talking about himself. Don't miss that. He's talking about himself. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's talking about himself, his crucifixion. And then they will fast. All right. Next passage, uh, verse 23. Anyone? Bueller? Good. Irene? Now it happened, he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests and also gave some to those who were with them. All right, stop at verse 26 for a minute. Um, the background on this is that within the temple precincts and the granaries, there was always some bread set aside sort of just for God, and you know the priests would get to eat those. During a time of famine, David broke in, gave the bread to people who were starving. And this is important because it's showing a hierarchy of need and, and what's really important. We're back to our friends, the Pharisees. Um, Pantali is finally here, so we can get a good Greek reading. Does your Greek text say, para por eveste? Mm. Well, they were going through the grain field, verse 23. One Sabbath, they were going through, 
and they began to pluck heads of grain. I think the, the Greek is parapodevos, is it not? Yep. Yep. Okay. Porevo is to, to proceed, to go. The Greek para is an intensification. So they're, they're stomping. They're kind of trampling. They're, you know, they're plucking the heads of grain because they're hungry. Pharisees, is there anything wrong with what they're saying? Now, we've talked, we're not going to beat up on Jewish Sabbath laws. We've done that in the past. They had some really bizarre laws, really bizarre understanding of the Sabbath. You can only walk so many miles on the Sabbath. Like, I think it's seven miles. What, what, what would be today seven miles? Over that, it was considered work. You could only tie so many knots. If you know, more than four knots, that was considered work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they start building this whole hierarchy, this kind of caste system of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Is, is there anything theologically wrong with what the Pharisees are saying in verse 24? Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're paraporevis there. They're not just proceeding. They're, they're trampling. They're picking these grain heads and nibbling them and eating them. And technically that's work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So are the Pharisees wrong? No. no. What are they doing out on the Sabbath? Yeah. What? Right? What are, what are they out there doing? Just like we caught this woman in the act of adultery. How? He's healing on the Sabbath. Where are you? What are you looking for? The Pharisees. Do you think they're out? Do you think they were having religious services in the grain field? <laughs> Maybe they were taking some too. They were following. <laughs> they have been shadowing the disciples. The same exactly correct. The hypocrisy again. They're trying to, to, to catch them, and, and in doing so, they're catching themselves. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, in other places, Jesus will use this expression the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's coming in about seven verses. These Sabbath laws that we like to make fun of actually had a beauty behind them. The theory was beautiful. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Period. For one day, we're not going to work. Yvette, she's an executive. You know, I run a charity. On Sunday, we've got to check emails. You know, we don't shut down anymore. When's the last time you just went, you know, Sunday, we went and visited family. When's the last time you did that on a Sunday? Just... Turn off the TV, turn off your computer, turn off your phone, stop checking emails, and just go visit. Go visit. You know, the Lebanese are like the Greeks. You've got these, I'm sure the Russians are, you've got these huge circles of families where we just spend time and talk and chat and get, I'm not going to check emails. i got four reports. i got a board meeting on Tuesday. i got this i got to do. You know, I, I carve out pretty much an hour or two every Sunday to do some work. How nuts is that? That's why it's so easy for us to mock these Old Testament Jewish Sabbath laws. There's a lot of beauty behind them. But those laws were made to bring us to God, not to keep us from God. We're going to see it even worse in the next passage, but let's just go on. Irene, keep going. Pick up in 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. All right, he just identified himself with the bridegroom. Now he just used this interesting expression, the Son of Man, which no Jewish person would miss. Clearly in the Old Testament, the Son of Man is a messianic figure. He is, he is letting people know in very slow but certain terms who he is. 
But this is that passage I talk about. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Those laws that the Jewish people want to beat each other up over, they're there to bring us closer to God, not keep us from God. The hypocrisy reaches its ultimate peak. I read to keep going in this final passage, chapter 3, verse 1 following. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So now just stop right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> they watched him for I want you to read it again, and I, we're just, I want you to take 30 seconds of silence and let these words sink in. Go. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Stop. You have a man sitting here in the synagogue on the Sabbath day with a withered hand. And what are the Pharisees concerned about? Is there any concern voiced here about the man with a withered hand? No. And, and let us remember, this is before computers. I, you know, I know every sermon we use, oh, this is before the internet, ha, ha, okay. This is an agricultural world. If you had a withered hand, do you work? No. You're done. In an agricultural world, if you have a withered body part, you are going to become a beggar. There is no place for you unless you have a wealthy relative that allows you to live in their house, who clearly this person does not. Is there any compassion at all from the Pharisees about the man with the withered hand? What is, what is their whole focus right now? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath day? Because <gasps> if he heals, he's working. And we got him. How nuts is this? How misguided has the religion become when it is no longer about bringing people to wholeness or trying to catch people in blasphemy? We're trying to catch people breaking the rules. We're trying to catch people working on the Sabbath. They have a law against healing. Yeah, apparently they must. Yeah, a private <laughs> one. Um, this is the, these passages are just fascinating. All right, I read, pick it up in verse 3. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Now, we saw this earlier uh, in two passages back when the scribes were reasoning within their heart, why does this man forgive sins? God alone forgives. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says, why do you reason thus? What is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your pallet and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man... So he knows what they're thinking. He knows what these Pharisees are looking at. Yeah, he, he walks into the synagogue, here's a man with a withered hand, and he's, sorry, gang, you're the Pharisees over this side of the room tonight. And he sees the Pharisees, and they're, they're all like this. Waiting. Let's see what he does. It's like this. Yeah. But you have to put it in context. <laughs> We're thinking today, because we know how the story is. Back then, they didn't know what the story was. It hadn't been written yet. It's being written as they speak. Exactly correct. And, and so you, their and, thought process is not like we're thinking today. They know it. I, I think, um, Scott, you're exactly correct. Did I call you Steve earlier? You called me Steve earlier. Yeah, I'm sorry, Scott. He answered yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scott, I, I think you're on to something here. And that's the point I was making earlier about our thought process. You know, I think we approach the Gospels today with certain thought. This is one of the reasons why I think Bible study is so important, for the record. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I think Bible study of the Gospels is so important, that we stop pretending we know what Jesus was about and actually read what he did and, and make him come alive. That, let's, just, let's just take a look at, at the text. And so you're correct. The Pharisees, on their religious understanding, sadly, it's been so perverted, if you will, that they're more interested in whether or not he's going to break the Sabbath law than they are about this guy getting healed. 
And Jesus knows it. He knows it. The minute he walks into the synagogue, he knows they're setting a trap for him. And so they had false prophecy all the time. In the past. So that's what they thought he was. Agreed. And I'll call you Bill next time. We'll just we'll change your name. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I mean, finish it off. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I love his question. <laughs> and what a good lawyer he would have That's made. Because he's thrown the trap right back at them. Right? He doesn't say, is it lawful um, to work on the Sabbath? Because that's, they, that's the question they want to ask. So where does he come? What's the proper thing to do on the Sabbath? To heal or to kill? To do good or to do evil? How, how, do, you, how do you answer that question if you're a Pharisee? You don't. They did So, exactly. And, and verse 5 is one of those verses in the very first week I alluded to of all the four Gospels, the Gospel according to St. Mark and I'm saying this very, very carefully, it gives us the most human Jesus. He gets angry. You don't see this in the other Gospels the way you see it in Mark. Look again at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. He grieved at their hardness of heart. I think these verses are critical for us because sometimes if you put Jesus just in an icon or in a statue and you take away his humanity... When you're angry, you have nowhere to go. When you're lonely, you have nowhere to go. When you're scared, you have nowhere to go. If Jesus wasn't scared, lonely, and angry, if he wasn't frustrated, he can't identify with who we are. But he was, and Mark tells it, he was angry. When you're angry, do some good. And he looked around at, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Scott, to your point, they have their preset notions. Has even this empirical evidence right in front of them, has that convinced them? Look at verse 6. Irene, read verse 6 for us. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plied with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. All right, that's their response. Herodians, so you know, a little bit of the political background. Rome has conquered Judea. Not only do we have the tax situation that we addressed earlier tonight, they also allowed the Jewish people a certain modicum of self-rule. And they were allowed to have, he was a, he was a puppet king, but they had a king, and the king was Herod. So the Herodians are going to be this sort of court circle of people. So kind of circling around Jesus for the next three years, you've got these Herodians. Remember, these are the, the people who had John the Baptist put to death. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And then, of course, over here is Rome. And all three of these are ultimately going to conspire to put Jesus to death. What's interesting is in, where, what are we, the, the sixth verse of the third chapter of a gospel that has 16 chapters in it, and we already know how the story is going to end. Because what verb does Mark use? They held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. He doesn't say silence. He doesn't say make go away. Destroy him. He doesn't even say kill him. They're, they have to destroy him. They have, they have to crush him. They ultimately have to bring him to the most painful, horrible, 
humiliating death that the ancient world ever created, crucifixion. There was nothing the ancient world had that was more painful, more horrifying, more humiliating uh, than crucifixion. And the Romans today. Not even today. Not even today. You're correct. There is no such torture that can be. And the Romans had it down to a science. Yep. They had it down to a science. They crucified many, many, many people. So already at this early part, while we're seeing, and here's that Bishop Demetrius, that authority and passion. Here's this powerful passage of authority, and yet there's that hint of passion in there. They met with the Herodians and took counsel how to destroy him. All right, Judy, back to you. Verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem, Adumia, and beyond, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. And when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitudes, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had affliction pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. All right, we've seen this before about where the demons are confessing him. The part I'm going to draw your attention to here is verse 7, the very, very beginning. What does this tell us about Jesus? He had a great following. Great following, and what does he want? He withdrew. He withdrew with his disciples to the sea. He, he, he needs some peace. Remember, we've talked about this before. Jesus is constantly looking for some peace, for some place to just kind of gather his thoughts and his spirit together. Um, when's the last time you did that? Yeah, aren't we all? Yeah. And sadly, we're, and I sitting before you am the, the biggest perpetrator of all. Uh, I open my eyes at 4.30 in the morning, and my brain is instantly going. At 4.31, I'm at full blast. I'm up. I'm at my computer. I'm checking emails. I'm doing this. I got to get going. I'm going to get my workout in. I got to get to work. Where's that quiet time? We wonder why we feel disconnected to God, from God. How much time do you spend trying to connect to him? And in what context do you try to connect to him? When's the last time you withdrew? Just withdraw. Turn your phone off. Turn the TV off. Turn, why do you think in Lent all those things stop? You know, we've talked about Lent for many, many years uh, here in this study in this parish. We're not fast. You know, I, I love when people say, what are you giving up for Lent? We're not giving up anything. You don't give up things for Lent. We're not turning off the radio and the TV because they're bad. We're turning it off so we can spend some quiet time to connect. Father Alexander Schmemann, the late Father Schmemann, it always used to um, amaze him that the first week of Lent, his mother would lock the piano. There's going to be enough silence in this house. We are terrified of silence. Terrified. It, it just fascinates me today. You put the news on, you got the news, there's the scroll, there's the breaking, there's this. Or that. You go to the gas station anymore, the gas stations have TV screens showing commercials and music. You, you can't go anywhere and not hear noise. It's to distract you from him. In particular in the church. God forbid there should be 30 seconds of silence in church. Someone, somewhere. It's like, what the heck is that? Somebody somewhere is going to start just wailing something in, in Greek or Russian or Arabic or whatever. Heaven forbid. 
in the church of all places where we most need silence. We're terrified of it. Oh, absolutely. And if, if the choir's not singing something, the priest will sing something. I always want to shout back, I don't want to. This is communion. Silence is good. But, but I digress. Um, so, again, the, the, the crowd comes after him. I think you know, we've kind of seen these things. What I really want to get to is, is this last section, the call of all the apostles, the disciples, excuse me, in verse uh, from 13 to 19. Uh, Nadine, I'm going to throw it back to you. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. No, let's stop there before you get to the good stuff. Mountains are always a place of God's revelation. Where does Moses get the Ten Commandments? In a mountain. You know, Elijah has his encounter in the mountain. The Sermon on the Mount. So in the ancient world, the mountain was always a symbol that something divine is going to happen up here. So he went up on the mountain, and I, I love the way Mark uses the word here. He called to him those whom he desired. He has specifically chosen these 12. And we talked about this two weeks ago. I mean, if I'm setting out to to spread a a new religion, I'm going to pick some religious people. Or at the very least, some people who have some college degrees. Not him. Keep going, Nadine. And then he appointed 12, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bornegas. Bornegas, yes. That is, sons of thunder. Remember the father was yelling at him when they left. Mm-hmm. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So stop there. So here's that hint of the, the, the betrayal already now amongst the 12. The point I want to draw here as we, we break tonight, what is the job description? If that's an HR people and culture expert, the big of the job descriptions, what's the job description of a disciple? Follow Christ. Spread the good news. Okay. It's right in front of you, verses 14 and 15. You hit most of them. Did Mark write this after Jesus' death? Yeah, 30 years later. This would have been about 65 AD. Who preached to heal, to cast out demons? And Pandali, you, and I, I... That they might be with him. Thank you! That's what I'm looking for. We are so focused on going out and doing, we forget about being. Yvette said this to me the other day. You can either be a human being or a human doer. Most people want to be human, human doers. We, we, we got to go, what's the, what's the job description? Ah, very simple. It's right there. It's right there in verse 15. Um, preach, cast out demons, have authority. Got it. What did we forget? Yes. Be with him. Be with him. The number one task of a disciple is to be with Christ. Only when you are with Christ... Do you have the power and the authority to preach and cast out demons? I, I get frequently amazed in, in certain sort of non-denominational circles where a guy gets converted or a woman gets converted to Christianity and three weeks later, you know, they're leading Bible study in their church. I mean, you got to spend some time with Christ. you got to let the message sink in. One of my favorite quotes from the ancient father, St. Gregory, 
uh, Pope of Rome said, one who cannot be silent must never speak, for he would have nothing to say. We talk about the power of St. John Chrysostom. Uh, good Antiochia. You know, he came from Antioch, wound up as Patriarch of Constantinople, and certainly uh, one of the greatest preachers in the history of 2,000 years of Christianity. What we forget is that before John became Bishop, Archbishop, and Patriarch, he spent years in a cave doing nothing but reading Scripture. So when he went out and became a Bishop, and then Archbishop and Patriarch, he had something to say. When I listen to clergy get up in the pulpit and they have nothing to say, I can always tell that they haven't spent time with Christ. I know that's a judgment, but it's right there in front of us. The number one job before we preach, before we cast out, you got to be with him in that quiet place. Now in this room, who are the disciples? All of us. Every one of us, from, from Daniel and Michael up to Scott, Mary Lou, Yvette, Pandali, all of us. And so our job is to first and foremost be with him, to spend that quiet time with him every day, listening to his message. And this is what Bible study does for us. This is why I hope the only I, I hope your sole Bible study is not what takes place on Tuesday nights between seven and eight. I'm hoping that during the week, you know, you crack it open a little bit and, and you know, just kind of focus on the Gospels. One of, um, one of the most popular, beloved books in the Orthodox uh, literary world is The Way of the Pilgrim. And it's about a, a Russian pilgrim who sets out to discover the Jesus Prayer. What I love about that book, beyond the obvious, and uh, Lily, you seem to react, so, Lily, so you remember the, when he meets the Russian army officer. There was a Russian army officer who was about to be thrown out of the army because he was a drunk. And he was going out to a bar one night to get drunk. And he knew the next time he got drunk, he'd be kicked out of the army. And as he was walking out of the door, at the door there was a Bible. And he picked it up and he said, eh, let me read this. And he, read the, he started to read the Gospel of Matthew. He wound up reading the entire Gospel of Matthew. By the time he finished, the bars were closed and he went to bed. <laughs> the next night, he was going out to get drunk again, saw the Bible, said, eh, let me read Mark this time read the entire Gospel of Mark. By the time he finished Mark, the bars were closed, he went to bed. He started the practice every day. He would read a Gospel in its entirety. Interesting way to deal with addiction. The bars are closed by the time he finished. My point is, one of the things I love about Russian spirituality, it has tended to be very Christ-centric, very Gospel-centric, simply because so much of the literature that the Greeks had didn't get translated into Russia. So all the Russians had was the four Gospels. And your Bible reading, stick to... My spiritual father was a Russian monk, and he said, Dimitri, stick to the Gospels for the first hundred years. After that, after that, you can read whatever you want. Why? Because we need to give Christ room in our heart. We need to make him alive. We need to study him. If you were a secret agent, Scott, you were a, you were a Palm Beach deputy. You did incredible things in your career. If you were keeping surveillance on Jesus Christ, what would you want to know? I'm asking where him he's where he's talking. Yes! Talking to. I love when you think like a cop. <laughs> Who are his friends? Why are they his friends? Who are his enemies? Why, why do they like him? Where does he go? When he goes up there by himself, what's he doing? Who does he associate with? What is this guy all about? 
A good cop wants to know that you need to be a police officer keeping surveillance on Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> study him. Read the Gospels and study him and make him come a lot. You've got to make time for him. You've got to make room in your heart for him. You've got to make time in your schedule for him. This can't be the only Bible study you do all, all week long. You've got to do something between Tuesday at 8 o'clock and next Tuesday at 7 o'clock. You can't? Pardon? You shouldn't? You should. Absolutely. So, job description of a disciple, be with him and preach and cast out demons. But if you want to cast out demons and preach, you better be with him first. And we will stop there for tonight. We'll see you next Tuesday.